Hello and welcome to the Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. For our fourth series, we'll be talking about flux and flow, how we navigate change and the forces that steer our lives. In the summer, when COVID restrictions were just starting to ease, I met the writer and Anglican priest, Marielsa Bragg, in the small park that stands between two churches in Hampstead Garden suburb. Bragg's own life, which has encompassed an early career as a dancer, the devastating loss of her mother, and her quiet route to faith, is a striking illustration of how the years can carry us in unexpected directions. Laura, it's so good to meet you here in Hampstead Garden suburb, just outside St Jude, that has been closed for months. And I understand that I'm one of the first people that you've seen after <laughs> lockdown. And we're about to talk about flux and flow. So it's like the river's gone dry and suddenly the new spring waters are coming through and, and here I am, a new person. I know. I don't quite know how to behave in front of a new person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm real. I'm not on Zoom. <laughs> it's remarkable. So could you tell us about this spot that you brought us to? Oh, well, I love this green. The green here, it's got open tennis courts, anyone can play them. And it's a place that was designed by Henrietta Barnett, early 1900s, late 1800s. She was an incredible woman. Not only did she build soup kitchens in the East End, and but she built this whole area with um, large houses, small cottages, about rich and poor living together. There are big, beautiful flats made for teachers and nurses and doctors. And um, lots and lots of allotment land, and everybody has green spaces, small woods, big wood and little wood. And she wouldn't let them uh, knock any of those trees down because she believed you had to have the original trees in those woods, and they have a beautiful atmosphere. That is glorious. Mm. I was quite intrigued when you said to meet here because we are right by St Jude's Church, aren't mm. we? And you are an Anglican priest, is yes. it an Anglican priest? I did wonder whether churches in a landscape become the steady points for you? Mm, That's a good question. I think one of the things I love about this landscape is if you stand in the middle of the square, you've got the Methodist church on one side and the Anglican church on the other side. You've actually got a quiet Quaker church in the corner as well, which nobody knows, which is very Quaker. Um, But if you stand in the middle, and I really, it, it must have been designed like this. If you stand in the middle, you can see through the large windows all the way through the Methodist church to the other side and if you turn around exactly in line you can see through the windows through the Anglican church to the other side so they're completely aligned so there's sky all the way through them I kind of like that about it as if there's you know nature's there in its grandeur and these churches are are beautiful the round dome of the Methodist church this beautiful peak of the Anglican church but still the sky is you know far bigger than they are is your church Westminster Abbey? No, I'm just one of the many, many lowly duty chaplains who work there like a week at a time. Yeah, only maybe like once or twice a year. I've been doing that for about 10 years. And how does it feel? Is that different to, to go into such a grand and stately and well-known church compared to coming to one of these more intimate Yeah, St Jude's is a really interesting church because it's got lots of paintings hand-painted onto the wall. Um, I'd love to remember the name of the person, (laughs) but I can't. Westminster Abbey is different because it feels like a place for our cultural heritage, really. You know, it's got Poets' Corner, it's got Caxton Press, it's got um, Darwin, um, you know, Queen Elizabeth, 
obviously you can see it and it's in queen it's got a death mask of queen elizabeth i think it's her face and hands so you can see what she really looked like as you walk past her and she's got this grand tomb and underneath is her sister mary which is very moving a lot of people say oh my that's terrible she's got this massive tomb and poor mary is just buried somewhere underneath but actually it was incredibly dangerous for her to... She refused to let them bury Mary anywhere else. She said she's got to be buried with me in Westminster Abbey. What, what that would do, Mary being Catholic and Elizabeth being Protestant, would acknowledge that Mary might have been you know, a justifiable Queen of England and that the Catholics had a place. So it was very dangerous, but she wouldn't let her sister be buried anywhere else. I didn't that's know that. Amazing. That's extraordinary. Mm. And to walk it's, among those, those figures... Yeah, there's millions of stories like that. Every time I work there, I feel like I just grow you know there's so much to learn and I have to sort of rise to the occasion you know you do a prayer on the hour every hour and you get everyone to be still for a moment and it's really beautiful sort of sound of silence if you like when you can hear everyone's feet shuffling and suddenly there's this I evoke the idea of a minute silence which is really I guess probably the most modern idea of people just being still in prayer and often, if I time it right on the hour, you, when Big Ben was working, you could hear Big Ben chiming. Once I did a Eucharist in the, um, in the middle of it, and it was when all the protests were being done for um, the students, for student loans. And um, I remember vividly lifting the host up and saying, Body of Christ, and I like, I like silence, so I just leave, stand there for a moment. And the whole of the abbey was still and quiet, and outside you could hear, rah, 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 rah. I thought, gosh, this is really the centre of London. <laughs> but also, our, our theme being change and flux and flow, mm. remarkable to have these moments of, of stillness, but surrounded yeah. by church bells and the passage of time, and, and then mm. protests, which, which surely are pushing for change. Yeah, pushing for change. And that's what we're pushing for now, really. So it's real, a real time for keeping vigil, I think. How do, you, how do we do that as a, as a community? How do we take the next step after this very it's extraordinary It's a really good stage? question, because I think even the way we have to do that has to change. But one of the gifts of lockdown is that everybody's turned to Zoom and YouTube and the internet. And that's, I think, a, a saving grace, because we can turn and listen to people we want to hear, that we trust, that we want to be in conversation with, that aren't into sort of creating change and then keeping at the top with an arrogance of, yes, I'm the leader. They want to be part of something bigger than them. And you can always tell the difference between a sort of crafty fox who who might have a brilliant way of making change but then wants to stay with that bravado at the top and maybe a, a kind of wise owl who'll have the same tactics but be thinking about legacy and be wanting to empower everybody and hand on and that's that's what we've got to watch for and try and find in our and I'm really hoping that there'll be a new vocation for politics with our young people I, I really hope that you know lots of people um during lockdown turned to the internet for spirituality not religion but spirituality in their millions and that's given me a lot of hope because every generation has to kind of bring spirituality into their life and renew it in some way and i think that might happen with politics I think now's the time, you know, we're talking quite seriously, bringing into real conversations things like universal basic income, 
which would have been thought of as completely wacky before. But now we're looking down the road and thinking there might be loads of people without any money at all. And, you know, crisis does does make us stand up and be counted, like after the war or, you know, with the NHS. Or I'm really hoping that'll happen. Me too. And is it in your nature to be hopeful about such things? Yeah. And when I'm not, I hope to be hopeful. Because <laughs> <laughs> what else, what have you got? <laughs> that? Yeah. I was going to ask you, actually, what, the, what role faith and spirituality has to play um, in a time like this, I, I think increasingly in, in modern life we've we've missed spaces to be silent, spaces for contemplation, which is why you know we all go to a yoga class, but we don't necessarily go to church on, on a Sunday. But this has given us all a huge moment of of stillness and contemplation. Do you think that we might gravitate back to to faith as much as spirituality? Mm, maybe. You see, I've I find the tradition I've been born into, which is Christianity. My hope is that in this bid for spirituality, which I think is really, I can feel it, I can hear it coming on the cars, and I get lots of people coming to me for what you call spiritual direction, and a lot of them haven't been to church. And my hope is that in our renewal, um, and see, I believe we're all spiritual beings, so we look for a renewal in one way or another, there will be two things. One, there will be a very beautiful creative movement that we'll start to imagine into how to have a non-dualistic spirituality that really involves the earth and nature. It was starting in theology with with process theology and people like Teilhard de Chardin, but there's a whole new massive need for understanding not only are we these grand stewards of nature but we're actually part of nature um, so uh, how does that fit into a history of Christianity and the second thing I would say there's a lot of benefit from taking the Christian tradition with us because it's our roots it's our history and even though you may understandably think that Christianity in the name of Christianity there have been a lot of really destructive things over history that's absolutely right there are also incredibly inspiring things throughout history. That's also right. If we only take the good and forget the bad, we are in danger of repeating those mistakes. Anything that is stunningly beautiful and powerful can be misused. But just because it can be misused doesn't mean it should be thrown away because we deserve it. It's ours. Your own faith has and the church your relationship with the church has it always felt like your church or has your faith ebbed and flowed imagining it as a human being it must have done at times <laughs> yeah, of course yeah I mean I think a life of faith is you know it's it's a relationship isn't it it's a relationship with life you know sometimes you think you're in the flow and sometimes you wonder if there's a flow at all and at what point did you decide to become a priest mm. well I didn't really decide I I felt a calling to ask the question. I didn't feel it when I was younger because I didn't have an, an image of a female priest. I only had an image of a male priest. So when I was younger, I thought maybe I'd be a nun. But if I was going to be a nun, I would have been a Cistercian nun, which is a very silent life. And it seemed quite clear that I didn't want to be part of an order, like Dominican order, which is going and ministering to people. And so I, I couldn't quite work out where I fit. When I, mean, I was a dancer, my first job was a dancer. 
But you see, ritual and theatre have the same root. So for me, the sacred theatre, you know, the Greeks knew it well. And there's a real sense of sacred ritual and making a space sacred. And I think that's something that, you know, to reclaim. You mentioned actually when you when you are um, sitting in the Eucharist and, and you you pause for that moment. Mm. Is there an enjoyment of the performance? Or are you just playing with silence? Mm, the word performance is so loaded, isn't it? It is. Uh, let's take away the loading. I mean, is, is it part I of the ritual I, that we all feel, enjoy? I mean, I'm doing a ritual that has been done by thousands and thousands of people before me and will be done by thousands of people after me. I'm kind of joining in. So the ritual affects me as much as it affects everybody. So I hold the stillness. Really, I suppose the craft is to hold the space. But it's, you know, I'm not doing it for everyone. It's happening to me as well. So, you know, you're just holding your centre like everybody else. And how does one go from dancing to the church? <laughs> in, a, in a couple of sentences. No. Well. <laughs> However long you would like. <laughs> okay. The real answer, a real answer, because that is a two days talking <laughs> on a very long pilgrimage walk between us, but um, is from realising that I loved dancing but I didn't like performing which was a bit of a downer when I got into the group and then I happened to stumble across a team of researchers who were researching into body language with Diane Fossey. Do you remember Gorillas in the Mist? Yes. Okay, it was that team. So I got into that team because of my choreographic notation and then um, and so I saw that I was hoping to go out to Rwanda but she got into real problems with all the poachers there and I caught a tropical something, got very ill, lost a considerable amount of time and then started sort of learning to walk again and getting my life back and just thought, what's, more, you know, what's the most important thing now? And then I had a bit of a journey through mysticism, went to study theology, went to university, studied with the Jesuits to be a spiritual director. And then it just sort of happened to me. It happened to me, but it was like a, it was like noticing a kind of deep, sort of desert-like longing that had been in me for a long time. Oh, still? that's what it is, kind of feeling like. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh oh really? Oh okay. And how different is that longing to the, the feeling that you got when dancing? And is there anything else in life now that gives you that feeling that you had when you were dancing? So if I was to use traditional language, I would say you can pray with your body, you can pray with music, you can pray with or without words. It's about moving and being part of that sacred space or being in relationship. Um, so I suppose ritual is the same, it's the same thing for me. Though I was young, you know, I was... 18, so I don't think I would have been able to talk about it like that. <laughs> <laughs> but you would have been able to dance it, probably. Yeah, dance probably would. Um, you've mentioned silence a few times in your relationship with silence and the fact that you could have gone into a silent order. Has that changed over the years, or is that a centre for you? No, it's a big centre for me, yeah. Were you yeah. a very silent child? Yeah. And what's going on in your silence? 
massive world. <laughs> I'd say this is a very silent person myself. I'm intrigued yeah. by the silent people. Massive world, yeah. Just uh, really vivid. Yeah. And what happens when you get to the threshold of your silence and you cross um, over into words and action? Well, a real love for people. You know, I think that's what pulls me out. Just so happy to meet people and love, love, yeah. There's nothing else really that pulls me out. All different manifestations of it. But I know for myself that that this inner world, I've learnt being someone who finds it difficult to say no. Um, I've learnt that, that I can kind of do and do and give and give and give and then forget to have time to go back and let that creativity happen and... Um, and I need, definitely need to do that so that I can do everything else. And it's certainly where I write from. I write from that silent place. And I, I, you know, you have the scale. Some people are great planners in their writing, and some people are stream of consciousness. You know, like Virginia Woolf, or whatever. And I'm probably even past the stream of consciousness. And <laughs> I'm just, uh, I because I'm so trained in the kind of very Catholic waiting you know my Jesuit training I was trained to do 30 day silent retreats and so I'm I just sit and and go more and more and more silent just wait and then I'm in a journey with it I I'm as surprised as anyone else when I what comes through I'm kind of engaged with it as it happens and has an increased sort of relationship and knowledge of your relationship with silence has that changed the rhythm of your writing or your choice of language yeah, I think my second book was more... Well, actually, I didn't write it to be necessarily published. And I handed it over as proof that I had done some writing because I hadn't written <laughs> the one I'd been commissioned to write. So I'd asked for a year extension. Um, and they said, well, can we see what you're doing? I said, well, I'm not sure it'll be what you want. So it, it's very raw. But actually, th- when they said they'd like to publish it, the only thing was to just leave it in its raw state. And that for me felt incredibly brave because I've you know I've written like that but I've never shown it to anybody was this sleeping letters yeah sleeping letters the first one towards Melbrake which is about Cumbrian hill farming I could see I got at the end the last chapter is quite brave where there's a a very nature based completely nature based version of um, uh, Holy Week and so that was daring that goes into kind of I don't know what you'd call it poetic prose but um Sleeping Letters sort of picks up from there, really. Did Sleeping Letters change how people viewed you? Because it was a very personal book. Well, that's really hard to know because it was published in November 2019, the end of November. I did two festivals with a whole year of festivals booked and then we went into lockdown. So it could just be one of those books that's thrown into the river and who knows where it'll find a home or how people will find out about it I just don't know. Sleeping Letters was a very intimate very personal book Uh, it was stretched as unsent letters to your parents and your mother died when you were six I think. I wonder where you are in your grief now because we think of grief as something that we move through almost in chronological stages but but in reality it's 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 more of a wild experience (laughs) and all these years later where are you at? Mm. Yeah, I mean, in my work, I see the stages of grief a lot. There are supposed to be these seven stages, and there often are, but they are not always chronological at all. And people, it comes and goes. I mean, I think 
think we're more circular than linear a lot of the time, really. Um, for me, I wrote this book because I was sort of ready to try and give back. It's really a love letter more than anything else. Um, and I think also I just wanted to turn around and face a real family trauma um, with everything that I'd learned so far. And I felt that I could, I felt so much love for both my parents and in those unsent letters which I wrote to both my mother and my father, um, I felt that I could face everything that I'd seen very honestly and say, look, let's all really look at this as honestly as we can and still get through it. And I, I felt that it was, a, it was an incredibly healing book for me. Of course, all the way through, because it was done over two silent retreats, um, all the way through there was the Eucharist that kind of held me, which was a ritual that just I kept kind of going into always meticulously with all the little bits of detail that I had learned as a priest. And also for me, that because I was writing to my mother and probably because I'd been so so influenced by being in the women's movement to try and get equality in the church, the Eucharist is all mainly feminine imagery. And funnily enough, even though it's been out of, you know, it's been in lockdown and not in the festivals, the, the, the world of feminist theology have taken it up, which is great. So, uh, yes, I went through a real catharsis, but it was a sort of, and for me, at the end, I did feel that I let my mother go, or that I, and that I tried to help my father let my mother go, um, at the very last chapter or the penultimate chapter. There's a kind of a moment of reunion, and it seemed to be healing for my father. And who knows if it's healing for my mother? I don't know. I hope so. You are your half your family are, f- are French, aren't they? Mm. And I wonder whether um, having that dual nationality places you in a constant state of flux almost? Mm, that's a good question. Yeah, it's quite interesting. My name's Mary Elsa, but a lot of people in England sort of try to work out how to say it in such a way that doesn't feel like a double-barreled name or, <laughs> or they don't think that I'm not English. So in England, I'm mainly seen as English. Nobody thinks that I'm French and I don't have a French accent. Although if you're French, you can hear that I end my words a little bit. Um, so you can hear it, but if you're not French, you can't hear it. I think the way this is probably not for the buggers, but the way that you hold your head is French to me, and, and, I, and that sounds <laughs> a weird thing to say. But you know how um, when actors are doing learning different accents, yeah. and they say as much as anything, it's about how you hold the mouth. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and I spell if if I spell anything phonetically, it's definitely with an unconscious French accent, which is quite strange. Please <laughs> everywhere and R's. <laughs> Um, and, and in this strange point when we have a, an odd relationship with Europe, mm. how does that feel for you? Oh, sad. I mean, I'm hoping that we'll, you know, find a way of rebonding. I mean, sad also because we, you know, even in fighting the pandemic, we and and whatever's going to happen with the economy, and wouldn't it be better if we were all siblings together? Um, I think I actually feel more two different nationalities than I used to. But it's new. Is it enjoyable? I don't know. It's hard. I I love being my mother's daughter, and I love being my father's daughter. So, you know, it's personal for me. Yeah. 
Hey guys, you're on tape. <laughs> you're on tape, we're recording. Earlier you compared uh, spiritual longing to a, a desert. Mm. And I wonder how your spirituality feels now. Has it flourished? Well, it's funny. The image of a desert for me has a kind of sense of, uh, I, I think a sort of slightly John the Baptist sense of the, uh, uh, a wild person walking and looking for something deeply soulful that's involved in culture but beyond it all as well so I think that's the longing really just feeling like um, there's something ancient about priesthood um, for all of us I think that ancient sense does really keep me going it's just so fruitful and when I think of the early fathers, the early, you know, all the, all the desert fathers and desert mothers who went out, you know, after Christ and, 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 and you know, lived in caves or, or, or at the top of the stick, Simon the Stylite, or, um, and then the early, early monastic movement, you know, I, to be honest, I think all Christianity t- took on this deeply internal, meditative, spirituality because it's it was exchanged across the trade routes all through history and lots of people lots of modern people seem to think that you know buddhism has meditation and christianity has sort of stand up sit down put your hands together and pray and you need to look at the monastic traditions there you know I, when i was young in provence when my mother's family lived near a monastery called Senanc, which is Cistercian and when we used to go walking in the mountains around there you'd find you'd find some of the monks meditating in cave there was one old monk who used to tie himself to a broomstick to keep his back straight and meditate for hours does meditation and the commitment to meditation does Mm. that alter your relationship with change I suppose it a small change yes keeps me steady but sometimes, you know, I've found in my life that I change so much. It's, it's like I have to wait for a new skin. And even my vocation, my love of God, my relationship with God, whatever God is, even using the word God, has a whole new dimension to it. And I have to wait for that to land and become familiar. And I think if I map my life, I can see that I've slowly allowed myself to see more difficulty in the world and waited to see um, if my concept of the divine and love is going to be big enough to take that view in. I don't want a saccharine faith that gives me a lovely fantasy to make me feel good. Um, I, I want to, something real. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about George Orwell on this on a program called Beyond Belief think it's going out in middle August or something and it, it, Animal Farm because it's an anniversary of Animal Farm of course it is and um, I think it's really really important book right now and and the, there's this saccharine idea of you know this, the, the, the raven Moses the raven tries to tell everybody about this really lovely utopian sugary world that all animals will go to and and it keeps everybody happy that's wonderful but actually it doesn't prevent the, the you know the slaughter and and um, terror that's going on so something that can have both those things in view um, is something that I'm often looking for or waiting for right? 
Speaking of the sort of um, tougher side of life, I don't know if we got it on tape, but a few minutes ago, our recording was slightly interrupted by three young men who were swearing blithely beyond, beyond a hedge. <laughs> and um, you you went and spoke to them, not not in a ticking off way. You just you just mentioned that they were being recorded, and and they acquiesced in in a remarkable way. <laughs> and you said that that's confidence which has come from from your job and also yeah. from working on estates in Kilburn. Well the job that's the same thing so one of my jobs was on the um, estates on the Kilburn High Road for about six years I worked there part-time yeah really beautiful families lovely lovely people quite a few people who's grand the grandparent generation had come over from the Windrush or just after the Windrush I made lifelong friends there this older generation so they taught me how to be a priest really they would have a a bit of text ready for me every week and I'd have to go and visit them and debate this text and they would tell me about stories in Antigua Um, there was one gentleman called Mr Thomas who I just adored and he would tell me about it was like what it was like in the ports and and then we'd look at a bit of a text again and he'd have a really amazing take on it and they were incredible, but those that generation often were secretly looking after their grandchildren in a tiny, you know, one-bedroom flat, and just so generous. But there, because of that Afro-Caribbean culture, if I was in uniform, there was a, a, a respect because they knew that I was the one who was going to be, you know, bearing them, and that their grandparents needed me. And that there was, they had a respect for their grandparents. So I felt quite safe there. Whereas in some other um, places, some of my colleagues were not safe at all. Because, you know, you're a woman walking around. It's quite different. Have you learned how to carry yourself as if you're wearing a uniform? Is that part of the, the skill? Do you still know um, yeah, how to? although it's a bit dangerous. It's not. It, I shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes if I come out of uniform and I forget and I walk down the street. Now, when you walk down the street in uniform, you're symbolic. You're not, I'm not Mary Elsa. I'm, I am being a priest. And if, you, if I identify with being a priest, then I'm not doing my job. Like my ego's got in the way. And I'm quite aware that when I walk down the street, often people will want to look me right in the eyes. And they've got lots of, a whole history of Christianity coming in that one look. And they want to see what I do. So I'm smiling at different people and being really open and open-hearted and willing to have this eye-to-eye contact with everyone. And sometimes if I've just come away from work and I've put my uniform away and I go out on the street and people look at me, I start doing the smiling thing. And I think, they go, no, no, my <laughs> Very different reaction, yeah. probably. Yeah. We're just heading back into the into the sort of body of the square here. You can probably hear the tennis balls and the children. God, it's beautiful, isn't it? It's a lovely balmy summer's day. Still slightly smell the cut grass. You can, yeah, yeah. Mm. This landscape in North London um, must be familiar to you from knowing it throughout your life mm. how much has have you seen it change and how much have you seen the landscape of, of France change um, oh, some little girls here are playing blind man's bluff <laughs> oh that's great 
Um, well, I mean, I went to school in Camden. Camden used to be full of, you know, workmen's cafes and um, a completely different place. Now it's like a whole tourist attraction. So that's very different. And I'm glad lots of people are making a living. That's good. I suppose the biggest change I would want to talk about is really an environment. You know, my fear about the amount of just everything, the plastic. I, I just don't know what we're going to be doing about that and I'm worried that we, we might drop the ball and with climate change I just feel a sense of something different has really got to capture our hearts for me in, 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 in my world that's where this incredible spirituality in nature comes in and people's love for nature you can see it in lockdown people were turning to nature for a sense of solace even so the fact that things haven't changed as much as they ought, I think, is one of the biggest uh, issues I have. And, um, you know, we're, uh, uh, we were only just having supermarkets stop u- stopping to use plastic bags. Oh, it's someone's birthday. It's wonderful. <laughs> no wonder she was blindfolded. <laughs> Lovely. She's just had a cake brought to you. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, we, we'd only just stopped using plastic bags. Yeah, we, uh, um... So we do have the the capacity to create the most remarkable renewable energy, and it's all there. So I don't know why we're not doing that. Is that because it takes could. political structural change and, and also change by people who who have a sort of financial investment in things staying just as they are? Yes, it is. But one of the things that lockdown has showed us with our NHS claps and with our sense of community and being very dependent on each other, that our collective voice really counts and can really make a difference. And if we don't follow the path of fear, then we can all find something that we believe in, that we want to co-create. And I think that will come out of our hearts and not out of our fear. And I think it's really possible. So do you feel that we should abandon ideas of flux and flow and perhaps choose a singular path mm. that, we might, that might lead us somewhere positive? That's a really good question. I think flux and flow is about being alongside life and it's really important. It's about being in the river, you know. Um, okay, you don't put your foot in the same uh, water twice, but you're in the same river. And I think that whilst we watch flux and flow, which we'll need to because there'll be lots of obstacles in our path, uh, the Great River has to be given the ability to, to flourish and that just takes all of us standing on the banks, clearing the stones. And we, we can't do it on our own. One movement can't do it on its own. But just like equality for women in the church, it takes thousands of people doing small symbolic gestures and clearing the dam of that river and knowing in their hearts the future they want to create for their children and their grandchildren and it's totally doable but only with that kind of depth of compassion I think that's something that is the deeper flow of everything Toast podcasts are presented by me Laura Barton and produced by Jeff Bird Toast is a British clothing and lifestyle brand that aspires to a slower more thoughtful way of life If you enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe.